Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 62, The Middle Kingdom. When it comes to East Asian history in the first half of the 20th century, it is always Japan at the center of everything, constantly breaking the status quo to secure its place among the great powers of the world. An oddly absent party to that college of powers would be the largest and wealthiest nation in East Asia, and for most of human history, the world, China. With our experience of China in present day, it's almost incomprehensible that it spent generations a victim of the ambitions of far smaller nations. Doubly so that its main tormentor was the Johnny-come-lately Empire of Japan, a nation with far fewer human and material resources to call upon. And while the histories of the years leading to World War II tend to focus on the aggressors and their actions, the weakness of China in the years covered on this show are themselves a reason why the eventual global war became so widespread. For the better part of a century, the great nation of China had been coming apart at the seams, and finally in the 1910s and 20s, split into an undeclared, but very real, civil war. The nation shattered to pieces, and a land already being exploited by outsiders for profit became an even more enticing target. It is that very chaos, the confused fragmentation, that typically gets China's broader history during these years ignored. The scope is intimidatingly vast, the cast of characters numerous, and the lines on the map ever-shifting. But after a year of doing this, I have a lot of unearned confidence, so I'm going to go ahead and do what much more qualified historians usually don't bother doing, and try to explain just what in the hell was even going on in China during these decades. Like Japan, the story of China goes back a little ways. But don't worry, we won't linger so much on the 1800s here. The reason for that is because up to 1911, China was ruled over by the Qing dynasty, and their fall was going to be what really got the ball rolling on a truly modern China, as it unleashed a power vacuum that would take until 1949 to resolve itself. So, unlike in Japan, where the continuity of the Meiji and the Taisho eras informed future events, in China, there was a clean enough break in the nation's trajectory and a shorter introduction can suffice. That being said, get ready for a much longer story for the 1910s and 20s, because this will probably be the most winding, complicated series I've done to date. Which I feel is also entirely appropriate. By the time the 20s ended, China already boasted a population of a half billion people, which occupied a landmass slightly larger than the United States, with material resources to match. The vast river systems centered around the Yellow, Pearl, and Yangtze rivers provided natural transportation networks and fertile soils sufficient to support incredible population densities. The scale we're going to be working with here might be a challenge to you, the listener, and I would encourage you to consult a provincial map of China for reference. The provincial system for much of China is mostly unchanged outside the far northern frontiers, same with the provincial capitals and major cities, which is extremely helpful. And just in case it all still appears overwhelming, just keep in mind the vast majority of events are going to take place in the core of China, which is to say the eastern half. This is where the vast majority of the population lived, then and now, and it's also where most of the history takes place. And a word on pronunciations. Uh, the manner in which we in the West have written and pronounced Chinese translations has changed over the past century and a half, and by and large, I'll be going with the most modern place names for clarity's sake. Mostly. So, sorry for fans who like the minutia of, say, Beijing's name changes, I'm just going to refer to it as Beijing. 
This also goes for provincial names and most individual names. I'm going to make an exception for a handful of people or organizations, namely Chiang Kai-shek and what eventually became his political faction, the Kuomintang or the KMT. The vast majority of sources, even up to present day, still refer to these names even as others change, and I'll continue to do so here. So if you see a more modern source refer to the Guomindang or the GMT, it's the exact same thing as the KMT. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah. I was talking about how big and great China is and was. And since the default mode of China is wealthy and powerful, we need to talk about how, for a historically speaking brief window, that wasn't actually the case. The root cause of all the chaos was the chronic weakness of the Qing Empire by the 1800s. And it wasn't always that way, as the Qing had started their empire in the glory of great victories and spread China's borders farther than they ever had before. The Qing dynasty originated in the geographic region of modern China called Manchuria. It's that bulge that sticks out north of Korea. Back in the early 1600s, this land was not part of the Ming Empire, which itself was then the ruling dynasty of China. Instead, it was ruled by the native Manchus, who were an ethnic group separate from the Han Chinese. The rulers of the Manchu shook loose their vassalage of the declining Ming dynasty and went into business for themselves, invading China and taking it for their own starting in 1644. Now, they weren't quite the holy foreign power that the Chinese eventually made them out to be, as they were in the Chinese cultural orbit already, and only adapted their ways more so to China's after the conquest. But the foreign aspect was never entirely forgotten. And while during the good times it could be ignored, during the bad times it was going to become a source of contention. For generations after the conquest, though, conditions improved and under the Qing, China continued its hegemonic position in East Asia. It was, though, a hegemony with a relatively light touch. Owing to China's size and wealth, there really wasn't much out there of interest to the imperial court. Foreign ventures posed risky and costly challenges that lacked commiserate rewards. The occasional break from that policy, such as an invasion of northern Burma, which went disastrously, only proved its wisdom. In matters of trade, the story was similar, as the Chinese were uninterested in the inferior goods being peddled by the incoming Europeans. They were, however, happy with selling desirable Chinese goods such as porcelain, tea, and silks to the newcomers flush with cash earned in the New World. In this manner, China became laden with precious metals, and therefore an ever more enticing business opportunity for foreigners if only they could find a product to actually sell. The prosperity, though, became a double-edged sword for the Qing by the latter 1700s. The population was exploding and arable land became scarce. This was the age before urbanization and factory work allowed for such surpluses in the rural population to be absorbed. And resources in China became dangerously stretched, with unrest starting to spread. By the early 1800s, the Westerners had also finally figured out something they could sell the Chinese. Opium. Whereas before the money flowed only into China, there was first a balancing of trade, and then it tipped into the Westerners' favor as millions of Chinese became addicted to the drug. While smoked opium wasn't quite so destructive as modern opiates, having millions of addicts among your population wasn't great. The trade was already illegal when the Europeans started it, but that didn't really matter so much to the British, and there was a coterie of Chinese businessmen working with them to bring it to the market. 
The Qing emperor was not blind to the problem, though, and ordered the trade cracked down upon. The British didn't take this well, and launched the First Opium War in 1839 with a series of attacks all along the southern Chinese coasts. The complacent Qing state had not modernized its military, something it was going to struggle with for the next 70-odd years, and proved almost defenseless. They surrendered in 1842, allowing the Westerners increased trading access, and while not condoning the opium trade, defanged practical enforcement of its ban. Oh, also the British got the first parcel of islands that would become their Hong Kong colony. It had be expanded two more times in the 1800s, but this was the opening move in the Europeans establishing a physical presence in China proper, something that's only going to grow from here. Tensions would remain, though, and the Qing would try and reassert themselves against foreign influence again in the Second Opium War in 1856. It somehow went worse than the first one. This time, the British and French together marched all the way to Beijing, forcing the Qing to surrender yet again. This time, the opium trade was fully legalized, and relations between the West and China were normalized, which was to say they would act as equals, something that hit the Chinese pride especially hard. This war was made worse because it occurred in the backdrop of an even larger conflict happening internally in China, the Taiping Rebellion. Starting in 1844, a failed academic named Hong Jiuquan began preaching a new religion that mixed Eastern theology with Christianity, with him claiming that he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. If this sounds like things were heading in a kind of Waco direction, it was so much worse. The sect that grew around him was cracked down upon by the Qing starting in 1851. This prompted rebel armies, driven just as much by famine and a collapsing economy as religion, to rally around Hong. The rebels spread across southern and central China like wildfire, and vast areas of the empire fell to the proclaimed heavenly kingdom. The imperial court, not really seeing a way out of their predicament with both the Taiping and Europeans hot on their heels, opted to devolve a lot of authority to the provincial governors. This included the ability to raise troops, which is going to be very important later. This policy might have been a panic move, but the empire really was collapsing and Beijing was no longer able to marshal local resources effectively. The provincial governors at least owed their positions to the empire, and while they gladly took the expanded powers that were offered, they also rallied to its defense. Keep in mind that each province was comparable in size and population to respectably sized European nations, so having local men mobilize every last resource meant that the empire was working with a lot more than what they started with. While the Europeans were not beaten, the Taiping were eventually contained and then driven back. And when the Europeans got their victory in favorable terms, they turned around to support the Qing to make sure their gains remained permanent. By 1864, the Taiping regime was crushed, and by 1871, the last rebel armies were mopped up. The Qing Empire had survived, but well over 30 million people had died in the rebellion, making it the bloodiest war before World War II. While I'm not going to get into the weeds on the whole affair, you should go back and maybe like do some reading on it. It is truly insane and a fascinating bit of history. Anyway, the nation was pretty well shattered, and the empire was now a decentralized mess. That had always been kind of a hallmark of imperial rule in China. No emperor could rule as a true absolutist over such a complicated and vast realm. But from here on out, the provincial authorities would manage their territories as their own domains with Beijing only really acting as the rubber stamp of their authority. 
For the people of China, this all shook the legitimacy of the throne to its core. Among Chinese intellectuals and elites, there started to be questions of who to blame for all the disasters and China's poor performance versus the previously insignificant Westerners. The answer was increasingly the Qing and their foreign background, which was convenient because it meant that proper Chinese were fine and without blame. It was all the outsider's fault. The Qing government, for their part, recognized how serious their position was and started taking efforts to modernize, especially in terms of military might. This went uh, not terribly well. The administrative chaos precluded any organized system of reform across the entire nation. With the provinces empowered, they didn't want to give up their authority by submitting to changes coming from the capital. Infrastructure development, for example, was a mostly local concern, which was helped by the imperial court as they sold off economic concessions to finance itself as the tax base increasingly stayed local. People living in a province where a railroad was being built would want that railroad entirely controlled by local interests. Otherwise, it might be offered up to a foreign company with the money going to distant Beijing. Speaking of, the second half of the 1800s were decades of increased foreign enroachment on China as well. With the gates of the country pretty much blown wide open, every major nation started getting in on the action. Across China, the number of treaty ports rose, peaking eventually at 92. Now, a treaty port, or alternatively a foreign concession or legation, was a town that was open for a foreign government to establish an economic interest. This was usually solidified with some district coming under the direct administration of said foreign government, becoming an enclave where Westerners, and eventually even Japanese, businessmen and bureaucrats could operate away from the prying eyes of the Qing authorities. Different nations usually held their own districts, but kept clustered together, each nation's turf having its own laws and administrations. This was especially the case in cities like Shanghai, where large parts of the city were split into multiple foreign zones. Criminal gangs, like the infamous triads, rose to prominence as they could conduct their illegal activities in one part of town, while later laying low in another without having to worry about a unified law enforcement structure to crack down on. This also had a side effect where political exiles wound up in these areas, as taking up residence in a foreign concession was about as good as leaving the country. Foreign governments went along with this, as usually they did not want to get involved in power struggles they had no stake in, or saw the more powerful refugees as potential bargaining pieces later on down the road. In any case, these concessions were humiliating enough on their own, but as time went on, things only got worse for the Qing. To the north, the Russians annexed large tracts of northern China. I think that large block of land slashing southward toward Vladivostok that runs along modern-day eastern Manchuria and started encouraging the Mongol minority group within China to assert its autonomy from the central government. Keep in mind that the area that comprises the nation of Mongolia was in those days a territory of China, much like Tibet. Speaking of which, there was a British military expedition through the Himalayas in 1904 with an eye on establishing influence there. And while the British did attempt to conquer it outright, that was mostly due to the region not being worth disrupting UK operations in the eastern part of China. Both actions were part of the greater British-Russian rivalry that ran through Central Asia, a rivalry that also totally disregarded the Qing's borders and demonstrated how weak the empire's grip was on its periphery. The real cherry on top of this increasingly terminal weakness was in 1895, when the Qing were absolutely crushed by a Japanese invasion, 
as I covered in more detail back in episode 54. The war lost them the island of Formosa, which we know as Taiwan today, as well as their vassal kingdom of Korea, both of which would eventually become key bases in the Japanese Pacific Empire. The Japanese Empire had been a peripheral and unappealing land of so-called dwarf pirates to China since time immemorial. But then they turned around and crushed the Qing military with ease, which dispelled that illusion of superiority. A decade later, the Japanese victory over Russia actually cast another shadow over the Qing government, as it proved an Asian power could beat a European one. The Japanese could win, why couldn't the Qing? Now all of a sudden, the people of East Asia were looking towards Tokyo as an example to follow. And by the years preceding World War I, the great powers were starting to look at taking more than just cities. They started calling dibs on entire provinces as the concession system was expanded and foreigners started acquiring rights to develop and economically exploit ever larger swaths of China. The situation by the early 1900s was growing critical. In 1899, an anti-Western society that the West dubbed the Boxers, after their practice of martial arts, started attacking Western-owned property, Westerners in general, and missionaries in particular. This spread until in June 1900, the Boxers entered Beijing to attack the foreign concessions there. The Qing courts saw an opportunity and supported them, believing they might be determined enough to resist the West. They weren't, and as the foreign presence in Beijing was under siege, an eight-nation alliance invaded China and took Beijing. Because nobody wanted the responsibility of building a new Chinese government, they allowed the Qing to remain. This fresh humiliation was ultimately the last big one before the old empire finally came apart. The Qing attempted to win back some popularity in 1908 by granting elected assemblies at the provincial level, but this just made the decentralization even worse as local elites and notables scrambled to ensure their province's wealth stayed within the province. One important thing that the Qing worked on creating in this time was a modernized national army. Not that this would save them, but it would prove important for China after their fall. The Qing court appointed an official named Yuan Shikai to oversee the formation of an army answerable to Beijing in 1895, which would grow into the Baiyang Army. This force would expand to 60,000 troops, many of whom were trained by Japanese or Europeans, with officers also educated abroad. Their equipment was not up to a truly modern standard, but was far superior to what was found in China up to that point. Quickly became the single most powerful force in China, potentially capable of overcoming the vast provincial armies scattered across the empire. Power of this new army was appreciated, and fears about Yuan's own capabilities grew until he was dismissed in 1909, after the last emperor, the boy Puyi, came to the throne and his regent decided Yuan was too dangerous to remain in command. Yuan, however, had been the one to construct the Baiyang army, and had carefully chose the officer corps. They were men loyal to Yuan first, and the imperial court barely at all. Many of these men were nationalists who had witnessed Chinese backwardness firsthand, and were resolved to do something to rectify the situation. While Yuan was shuffled off into a quasi-exile, his men kept in touch and waited to see what their true commander would have them do and China was certainly boiling over. In an effort to import Western knowledge in a similar manner to Japan, the Qing had encouraged students to go abroad and absorb all the knowledge that the foreigners had to offer. Unlike in Japan, though, these students were not interested in coming back to enrich a dynasty they no longer had faith in, but to undermine it further. Their experiences in the West were disheartening ones, as they came to understand how far behind their homeland was. 
the impoverished communities of China could not compete with the increasingly sophisticated industries and farms of the West. And the progression in the sciences, too, was stark. It was in these experiences that the stirrings of revolution really began. Affiliations, parties, and underground groups started to form to push back against the Qing authorities and to remove the monarchy. This movement was served in part by funds provided by sympathetic Chinese who had immigrated abroad. These communities were completely detached from the Qing and already understood China's backwardness and wished to help those who would guide their homeland to the modernity they already enjoyed. Closer to home, they were helped by already existing groups in the provinces. Under the Qing, Chinese elites didn't so much organize into political parties as they did special interest groups that formed to push some narrow agenda or local reform. They weren't geared for national movements, but most every provincial grouping increasingly understood that the Qing had to go. More at the national level, the revolutionary movement in China was quite a bit weaker and wouldn't get going until very close to the revolution of 1911. But one man did become prominent as a public figure, albeit one that was constantly on the run from Qing authorities, Sun Yat-sen. Sun was easily the most prominent and well-respected of the revolutionaries, having been involved in movements to reform China and bring down the Qing for almost 25 years before 1911. He spearheaded numerous failed uprisings and took the message of a modern, dynasty-less China overseas to America, Europe, and even Japan. Now, granted, Sun took this message abroad because he was a fugitive and couldn't pull off a successful uprising to save his life, but he did manage to hold his movement together even in defeat. Soon managed to maintain a reputation as an honest and incorruptible man in his dealings, which, yes, didn't exactly make him the most effective politician, but did make his message much more appealing and non-cynical. In a time of shifting loyalties and compromised beliefs, Soon was a person that others could rally behind with the certainty that they were actually working towards the betterment of China as a whole and not just somebody's personal ambitions. Plus, the Qing considered him public enemy number one, so if you hated the Qing, he was the most public guy to rally around. He cultivated contacts and sympathy among his networks of foreign well-wishers, which came in handy when the Qing government had him detained at their embassy in London. They had every intention of smuggling him back home to be executed, but the British press rallied to his cause and his release was secured. Which is a far happier ending than captured political dissidents can expect these days. But the point is that Soon was charismatic and a natural survivor in a very chaotic time for his country, traits that would keep him in the game through his entire life. It was Soon that managed to unite many of the disparate revolutionary groups scattered across the country and forged them into a group called the United League in 1905. United might be kind of a generous way to describe the group, but it would serve as the precursor to Soon's Kuomintang party a group that's going to rise in importance over the course of this series. But he wouldn't have known that during that initial meeting of exiles in Tokyo, where the United League started. So the fact that they came together at all must have seemed like a victory. And there were some issues with the group and movement as a whole that were going to come back and bite soon and China. The thin community of revolutionaries calling for the removal of the Qing didn't really have any plans beyond that simple goal. The thinking might have been that once the foreign dynasty was removed, that China would naturally come together and rejuvenate itself. But, in any case, it definitely wasn't going to be a social revolution to uplift the population as a whole. Keep in mind, these revolutionaries were either well-off or educated or both. They didn't represent the common people. 
And while in the provinces the elites had lost faith in the Qing, they weren't in favor of losing their privileges, nor in spreading increased rights to people below them on the social ladder. After the 1911 revolution, a republic would be established, but for the local leadership this was meaningless too. They didn't care for centralized control under the Qing, and a change to a modernized government wouldn't change that perspective. The revolution, when it came, would be a very narrow political one at the top. Another issue for the United League was having to operate in the shadows. The group only had an official membership of 10,000 by 1911, although you can imagine they had adjacent contacts and sympathizers. And out of that group, thousands were living abroad, most in the United States, but others elsewhere in Asia. Given the small size vis-a-vis the rest of China, it was going to be Soon's personal reputation that was going to drive the most active part of the anti-Qing movement, outside of the provincial leaderships and military figures who were biding their time and awaiting the dynasty's final collapse. Which, good news for them, was just around the corner. Beijing's attempts to reassert control over their provinces was only serving to drive them further away, especially after the 1908 reforms gave the local notables more of a say in provincial governance. The numerous power centers scattered all across the empire, the rising tide of seditious thought, the lack of resources at the disposal of Beijing, all came together to make China a powder keg, one that went off in October of 1911, which is the cliffhanger I'm going to leave you on this week. The 1911 revolution itself won't be a drawn-out affair, but the struggle to replace the Qing absolutely will be. So, join me next week as we bid farewell to the last Chinese empire and embrace chaos. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.